Hello. Um, yeah, I was, I was really struck by uh, what you're saying about the sort of loss of that like specialness within British culture. Um, and I'm wondering if, because we sort of quite often talk at the moment of a uh, sort of mental health epidemic. Do you think the two are connected in any way? Are they all part of the same story? Or are they just two events happening at the same time? Or is that, are they just not connected at all? Um, what do you mean by mental health epidemic? Sorry, could you kind of unpack that a little? Yes. From uh, the work of young people I do and um, from various things I've been reading, it feels as if there's this rise in um, need for uh, counselling and um, the sort of a rise in both the awareness of the importance of mental health and just how many people are struggling with it. Mm. So we're talking about suicide being the largest cause of uh, mm. male deaths under the yeah. age of 25, I mm. think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think then may, and I use the word may advisedly, be a possible link only insofar as I think one of the things that is triggering not just our own dis-ease, but actually one can see it across the whole of Europe um, in terms of the, the rise of populist nationalism, is that one of the things that comes, has come out of, let's say, the development of the last 30, 40 years, and I'm trying, trying not to use big academic terms, but essentially, essentially the world is a more complicated place than it used to be. That some of the things that we assumed that gave us a sense of identity have either eroded, so in terms of institutions, that like, there was a time when, if we talk about Christian Britain, that meant something more than just a set of ideas of having a Christian heritage. That I'm younger than some of you in this room, or older than quite others, but I still remember the days when, on a Sunday, there was nothing to do. The, on a Sunday morning, you went to church, you stayed in bed, or you did some sports. But, but shops weren't open. It wasn't a consumerist day, it was a different day. Our world has changed, and, and, and I'm wondering whether part of the rise in mental health issues is about that complication of the world. I, um, I don't have children, but when I talk to my nephew who's 16, his world seems far more complicated than when I was 16, and I thought it was bad when I was 16. You know? In terms of social media and stuff, and in terms of image, and what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable. I mean, the world, world can be a frightening place. Therefore, I think one of the things that makes populism popular is that anyone who can say, well, actually, it's a complicated world, but actually, we can sort it out for you. If you come with us, if you follow me, I can help you to make sense of it. And more importantly, I can make you feel important within it. That those things, that whether it's radicalisation of Islam on the one hand, but radicalisation of poor white working class people on another, or radicalization in other ways, they feed off people's insecurity. People who, are, people who are popular and confident don't get radicalized. People who are vulnerable and are feeling weak do. Therefore, I'm wondering, and I say I'm wondering because I'm not a specialist in the area in which I work and I've done no research, but, but I'm wondering just whether 
our complicated nature of what it is to be human in a complete, in an increasingly fractured set of societies or communities in which we live is leading to young people feeling a distinct set of dis-ease that then gives rise to problems of mental ill health. Thank you. I just may be building on that slightly. I was just wondering, you mentioned at one point, um, at least, the whole thing about the island nation and the mm -hmm. one that didn't get defeated in the war and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm just wondering if there's something about insularity mm. and the relationship between that and the internet. Mm. So we live in one breath, we live in this supposedly joined up world. Yeah. On the other, we have these geographical boundaries which people yeah. quite like having. Yeah. And just wonder what that tension yeah. produce, produces. Yeah. And actually, I think one of the things that comes out of the internet, and this I know only because I know a friend of a friend who's done a PhD on it in America, is actually one of the things about the internet is that in many respects, it does two perverse things, sorry, two contradictory things. And as you've just said, on the one hand, it opens us up to the world, but actually, it reinscribes our tribal identity. And so therefore, whichever set of circles you find yourself in, in terms of your in-group, your tribe, actually, actually, the internet is really good at reinforcing that. I always give people this example again, as much like to prick, as much to prick my own pomposity. So, a number of years ago, I was on Facebook, I received a friend request by a very attractive woman. Looked up there, I thought, okay, like we've got nothing in common, but she's very attractive, so why not? I'm single, so hey, what? So I clicked accept. And we start to chat. And we got on really well until Margaret Thatcher dies. And she then posts, my role model has gone. And I'm not proud of this, I defriended her in a heartbeat. Click off. Off you. I thought, no. I'm sorry, but I can't have a Thatcherite as a friend. Because if, if you find me on Facebook, all my friends, all my friends reinforce my own particular prejudices. Because I'm friends with people, if I post something, they like it. They post stuff, I like it. Because all of us have our little in-group thing. And I think one of the things that's happening with the internet, and we see it again in terms of radicalization is, as I said, it's this, I guess, a counterintuitive thing. On the one hand, it opens us up, but in many respects, it's actually closing us in. Add that to the islander thing. Add that to the fact that there is something about being on an island. And I've had to critique myself doing this research because the truth is I have never once called myself European. I'm British. I don't hate Europe, but you know, but but Europe's out there. Even though whatever happens with Brexit, we are still part of Europe. You know, we're not in Asia or Africa. We are in Europe. Yet the truth is, we have never identified ourselves, partly because we're not on the continent. Yeah. Therefore, I think you're probably onto something. Well, not not onto something. You are onto something, but it's just obviously other people are onto it, and they're writing it with big words. But 
But essentially, I think you're right. I think there is something about the internet that is reinforcing our tribal identities, not breaking them down. You talked about uh, Brexit and the whole idea of um, yearning for this empire and the empire that we've lost and the lament of all of that. And we see that in the negotiations and still the desire to still kind of reclaim that and that kind of triumphalism that kind of comes with that. Um, and in London, the kind of pocket, the microcosm, which is maybe this other empire, but also in that empire of that diversity, which has also been like crushed and torn and broken. And I'm wondering what you think we can offer in Christianity from the point of view of our woundedness and the wounded body and how that speaks into this idea mm. of empire. Yeah. I think you're onto something hugely important. Because I think one of the struggles we have in lots of our different traditions, within the historic tradition, is that, if we're honest, we're also caught up with this also, we, we are also caught up with this kind of post-imperial melancholy, if we're honest. Because if we look back, the church always looks better in the past. I'm sure there was a time when this church was full every Sunday. That's probably maybe part of its narrative. Oh, there was a time where like, you had to turn up at a certain point because like, you just couldn't get a seat if you didn't turn up early enough because it was full. And certainly within Methodism, when we're talking about fresh expressions and venture effects, if we're honest, it's about trying to recapture the past. We are afraid of our brokenness. We're afraid of our depleting numbers. We're afraid of our possible non-existence. Therefore, what we're trying to do is to find every new gimmick and scheme in order to try and re-bolster that which we have lost because it looked fantastic when actually... It was good, but probably no better or any different than it is now. Just more people turned, turning up. Therefore, I think one of the things that we have to offer from our theology is power in weakness. Actually, I think one of the things that we have at a particular moment in time is that there was a time when part of what shaped empire was the church itself. Commerce, civilization, Christianity. We were at the table of the great and the good and we helped to shape that narrative. Now the truth is we are marginalized in the broader culture and increasingly seemingly irrelevant. But actually maybe that's then our strength. That actually it is in our sense of marginalization, fragility, that the spirit of God will enable us to reach out and to make contact with other people who are feeling threatened, uncomfortable, not sure where they belong. At our best, what we should be is that place that says, actually, if you find no other place to belong, then actually belong here, because in a sense, all of us are here because we know that we don't belong. All of us are here because we know that we need a physician. As Jesus says, only people who, are, people who are healthy don't need a physician. People who know that they're in need of redemption come here. That's a possibility. But of course, part of our problem then is to then change the mindset that says that we haven't been at the epicenter of empire expecting people to come to us. 
because like, we're in a position of power and actually why wouldn't you come to us? Well, actually, we increasingly need to... You know this already. All of us know this already about how, how are we trying to connect with the broader culture in terms of being disengaged from it for perhaps about a century or so. But hopefully we should have a narrative that says actually being weak and fragile and possibly close to death and in fact even dying itself is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Because in the cross there is new life. That's a story we have to share. Mine is not a big, oh, a big question. This thing is scared of me. Do you realize that? <laughs> I just wonder if maybe we are in the time when empire is striking back. Maybe mm. that's the next book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, because I, I was somewhere in, in Malta a, a couple of years back, and <coughs> there were these couples... They were standing by the bus stop. We were waiting at the bus stop together. My, me and my husband and her, this lady who talked to me, her and her husband, she says to me, where do you come from? Because we were speaking English. And uh, I said, London. Oh, no, she said, well, I mean, where do you come from? Mm. I said, where do you come from? Mm. Oh, she says, we come from Spain. I said, so we know what we mean then. Mm. I come from London. I've lived in London longer, and I'm hiding amongst the others. Mm -hmm. That's how I feel, mm -hmm. you know. So maybe now it is empire striking back. Yeah. I think very quickly, I think one of the things that a number of scholars have shown is that if we're trying to understand things like racism and xenophobia, they are better understood as verbs and not nouns. And by that, what they simply mean, it's not static. The evil, evil and injustice never just sits still as a static object. So you can see it and you can say, that's what it is. And we can grab it, wrap it up, stick it in a box, lock it away and say, okay, there we go, now we're free. Because actually sin isn't static. And so what happens is it changes identity and morphs. And we have to be constantly vigilant in terms of being able to read the signs of the times and the cultures in which we're in, in order to see that we are not fighting today's fight with yesterday's tools. So give one very, very quick example. For me, it was really interesting reflecting on the 50th anniversary of Enoch Powell's Rivers of, Blood, Rivers of Blood speech that he made in the Midlands in 1968, I think in, in March 1968. And what was interesting is that even though 1968 was, sorry, and I was four years old, so I've got very dim memories of it, but my parents and various other people tell me quite clearly, Anthony, it was some horrific times. We've moved so far on. But yeah, here's the thing. Enoch Powell was sacked the next day by Edward Heath from the Shadow Cabinet. Because even at that point, what he said was politically 
unacceptable, and he was removed straight away. Interesting enough that 50 years on, we have progressed, and yet actually that type of language now is more acceptable than anything Powell would have said at the time that got him sacked. Because what has happened is that the rise of, the rise of right-wing popularism has made us almost desensitised to the kind of things that we would have found abhorrent even back in the so-called dark days of 1968. That what has happened is that our centre of gravity has shifted to the right. Therefore, one of the reasons why real extreme parties like the British National Party are shrunk is because like, they don't have to. Because actually, a lot of the political rhetoric that used to be that you simply could not say those things and the kind of things that you can say now with almost impunity because it's free speech. Therefore, part of what we, our faith has to do is to constantly help us to navigate how we are seeing and reading and interpreting the world. Well, one thing I often say about a lot of our theological colleges is that we're good at helping people to deconstruct text. I guess many of you sat through many a class on hermeneutics in your time. But actually, oftentimes, actually, we don't give people the hermeneutics about how do we see and interpret the world around us. Just a very, very simple question I invite you to think about, even in this room, about, about okay, like, so you came down and you sat down, and at one level you gave it no thought because you just came and sat down. But as you look around, just look at where you're sitting and with whom you're sitting or, or, or who's around you. Because oftentimes what even is, seems to be a particularly, well, and not a particularly significant thing often itself is a form of internalisation of those things that we have not deconstructed. If I had a pound for every time I've been to a room where all the black people sit at the back and all the confident people are sat near the front, well, insofar as anyone sits near the front in church, in fairness, who speaks and who doesn't speak? Who is affirmed and who isn't affirmed? Who gets on committees and who doesn't? Those, in fairly minute ways, they are often ways in which we are often then reinforming empire without even being aware of it. In those small ways, let alone the people who have a particular political agenda that is not committed to equality or equity or justice. 